Okay, we are rolling into this much acclaimed 34th chapter of Ezekiel. And uh, I assigned you some homework last week. And I told you that there was a cross-reference in our section that uh, I wanted you to find. And uh, then we could talk a little bit about it. So I don't know whether we'll get to that particular section tonight or not. So there's a little hint for you if you have not yet been able to find it. But has anyone been able to find that cross-reference or you think so? Okay, well, I don't want you to read it, Carol. I just want you to tell me where you think uh, that is in Isaiah. Give me a range of chapters, actually, in Isaiah. We'll keep everybody else looking, too, just in case we don't get there. Well, good. Well, give me your answer, and then we'll press Miss Judy about hers. Give me a give me a two chapter range either side of where you think it is, or three one way, one the other. Oh, John MacArthur. What in the world are you doing using using his stuff? Okay, well, you know, it's, I guess, how you read John MacArthur. We may have to call him and see if we can get a consensus from him. Okay, so we've got a range. Uh, Judy, give me a four-chapter range kind of around where you think it is. Yeah. Uh-huh. 40, 56, 30... Well, I, th- I think that we are, we're getting close with some of those. Um, as to whether any of you have exactly come upon it yet, I, I don't know that... Uh, let me just uh, take a, another quick look here at my own notes. And... Uh, I brought my wrong Bible. I apologize. I need my microscope glasses on for this. I think you've still got a little looking to do. Well, you got no, maybe maybe you're close there. One of those one of those numbers sounded like it might be in the ballpark. So, continue looking. You want an answer, don't you? I, well, there. I, what you're looking for is you're looking for a cross-reference out of Ezekiel. So it's listed probably in your Bibles. Cross-references change between different Bible versions and even within different Bibles. For instance, you could have one New American Standard that may have more cross-references than another, although usually they're pretty consistent. But it is a cross-reference in the New American Standard Bible in our section in Ezekiel 34. You would probably find it in most Bibles because it's a pretty prominent cross-reference. Well, I said that we were going to look at 16 verses, but that that cross-reference was anywhere in the chapter. 
because there are a bunch of cross-references to Isaiah, but there is a, a particular section that I think you'll find is, oh, look at you. We may have to talk afterwards. You're a good student. You get a gold star no matter what. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Well, and that's kind of purposeful. So, you know, not that I'm trying to drag you along, just trying to encourage your study. All right, well, let's start at the beginning and see if we find some clues on the way there here in Ezekiel 34. Of course, we know that we come out of chapter 33, which was this major transition chapter that was leading up into our text. We often discuss the vital nature of context, and it is never more important than here. And chapter 33 really sets our context. In fact, it's been well said. This is a quote that I think you'll find you may be able to uh, think about and ponder on a bit. That a, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Try that one more time, shall we? A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. It's a wonderful quote. I don't know if it came from John or from one of the other professors at the seminary, but uh, it, it brilliantly establishes the important need for our context. And this need for context is as we come out of Ezekiel 33, and in the beginning of the chapter, Ezekiel was told that he again has to be the watchman. He has to warn the people individually an almost identical message to Ezekiel chapter 3. And if he did not, then their blood would be on his hands. So he's reminded of the importance of his mission. And then we got to verse 21 and 22, and we had this great transition. We had the proclamation of the coming of the messenger, of the refugees, and that following, and that up until the time of their coming, which was the next morning, Ezekiel's mouth was opened and he had one night to proclaim all of these messages, which we're going to see all the way through chapter 39. He preached about all of these things that was going on and we see our text now in chapter 34 address a new subject and that subject is shepherds. It, it also addresses another New Testament question. And that question is, what happens in the situation of a sinning elder in the church? This is probably one of the most frequently preached outside of the Psalms Old Testament passage in the Bible. Because it is so applicable to the concept of elders. As we transition Santa Clarita Baptist from a congregational church to an elder-led church, we went through about 15 or 16 messages, and this was the last message that I preached prior to the congregation making their final vote, as we kind of called it, their vote not to vote anymore. And uh, fortunately, that was uh, positive by the Lord's guidance and blessing, but this idea of what to do with the sinning elder is perfectly explained in this text. That can be a big problem for a lot of people. The scripture tells us in Acts 20, 28, and we're not going to get a long ways tonight, just so you know. Um, we're going to move very, very slowly all of a sudden. Because I really want you to grasp what's in this very important text. 
But in Acts 20, 28, it tells us that the authority within the church is vested by the Holy Spirit in the elders of the church. And that all sounds fine when we read it in the scripture, but then we get these men in front of us. And we've got to commit and trust in them. And our inherent nature in the sinfulness and understanding of the sinfulness of men, not only in our own lives, but in the horrors of the world we see around us with, with our media age, which have exploded in all of the improprieties that are going on in so many leaders, make us go, really? We have to trust in these men? And the answer is yes. And oftentimes what comes with that is, well, what do we do? If one of these men is sinning, and I'm not, we're not talking about a one-time sin, but what if they're in an ongoing pattern of sin in their life? What is to be the, the way that this is dealt with? Well, this, is, this text addresses this problem. So when we recognize this understanding, it gives us an idea of where we're to go with a man who is rebellious against God. We know the human response for that as a church and the punishment is in 1 Timothy 5.19. And in 1 Timothy 5.19 it says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin, that is the two or three witnesses account confirmed, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also we will be fearful of sinning. So when there is sin discovered in an elder and it is confirmed by two or three witnesses and that sin is ongoing in that man's life, then he is to be brought before the congregation at that point and called out for his sin so that the rest of the congregation and the rest of the elders will be fearful of sinning. It's a very stark situation. It exceeds the requirements in Matthew 19 for, or uh, Matthew 18 for church discipline, and yet it is a very important consideration. But we have even a higher level of consideration and of judgment that comes in this text. So today we want to address these consequences, that is the consequence of a shepherd who fails to tend the sheep that God has given him, because as you see in this situation, if it, it should allay anyone's fears about a sinning elder, that somehow, gosh, what are we going to do if this happens? How can I really trust this man? Well, you're going to find out exactly why in this text. One of the most powerful messages for elders in the Old Testament so let's take a look. We don't often read through the text, um, but I do want to look at the first 10 verses just to give us an idea about what's in here. So follow along as I read Ezekiel 34, 1 to 10. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. 
They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field, for lack of a shepherd, and my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. So here we come to this this new subject, the shepherds of Israel. We have not seen this occur before in Ezekiel. We have seen Uh, the Lord rebuke the priests. We've seen him rebuke the Levites and the 25. We've seen him rebuke the nation by its individual uh, congregational groups or population groups, that is, the city of Jerusalem specifically, the nation of Judah, that is, Benjamin and, and Judah, the two southern tribes, the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, including the two southern uh, Benjamin and Judah. So we've seen all of these different ways that God has brought judgment and, and proclaimed his coming judgment upon them. But now we see a new group. Now we see the shepherds. I've titled our message for this morning or for this evening, The Feeding of Judgment. The Feeding of Judgment. In verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to them. And Ezekiel is chastening in this whole section these shepherds, those who are the blind guides. We're reminded of Matthew chapter 15 and verse 14, where it says, Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind, and if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Leaders are these who are going to fall into the pit And such is the case for these shepherds, for these captives as well as those left behind in the city of Jerusalem. Our text again begins with the word of the Lord and we remember Ezekiel was not allowed to speak until this point. And so now his tongue is unleashed unleashed, and God has allowed him to bring these prophecies. And at the beginning of verse 2, God's word comes to Ezekiel about the false shepherds prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. It is the shepherds of Israel who are this focus. Notice they are mentioned four times in verse 2. So there's no question whether we're going to miss who the attention of this subject is. The leaders of the nation. Shepherds is a term that is broadly used in the Old Testament. It, it, It deals with both in Israel and in the ancient Near East of kings as well as those who would be the religious authorities, as Dr. Cooper notes in his New American Commentary. Dr. Cooper further says, These shepherds were more than military political leaders. They bore a primary responsibility for the moral and spiritual direction of the nation. 
These were, in this case, the leaders of the monarchy of Israel. But the shepherds were now the ones leading the, spirit, the, the, the nation spiritually, exactly as it is in the New Testament, exactly, exactly as it is to be in the church with the elders. Notice the title God uses for Ezekiel, son of man. We've seen this 93 times or will by the time we get through the book. We're very familiar with that title. We've seen it elsewhere, haven't we? In the New Testament, it is the term that Jesus chooses for himself. Well, how is that? Is Ezekiel somehow connected with Jesus as a a type, anti-type relationship? No, that's not it. Because we see this term, son of man, used in a few other Old Testament places. We see it in Psalm 8.4. We see it in Job 25.6. And in Numbers 23.19. But there is an idea that's conveyed with this idea of son of man. And it is that there is a lowliness of man that's being stressed in it. There is a humility that is being brought forward every time the term is used. It's man's frailty and mortality. The characteristics which are vividly opposite of God's character of power and eternality. It is the humility of that term that is the parallel and why Jesus chooses it in the New Testament because he is revealing his humility and indeed his coming humiliation in that term by which he chose to reference himself. So Ezekiel begins this discourse and with it the first offense. Each one of the offenses in this text is governed by one overarching statement in verse 2. And that statement is, Woe, shepherds of Israel. This is a phrase which we've talked about. It is so lost, its impact in our world. If it's thought of at all in our modern day culture, it's a man sitting on a horse pulling the reins. That's what woe means. But that is not at all the context biblically. In fact, this is one of the strongest Hebrew words Because this word reveals God's utmost severity in wrath that's coming. There's so little grasp of God's wrath today that the word means even less. This phrase has lost most of its meaning. But as we'll see, when God says woe, the wrath of the all-powerful God is about to be fully unleashed. And when God says woe, we should feel the weight of his coming wrath as a proclamation of the coming decimation of epic proportion. Beloved, when we read the word woe in the Bible, we ought to be reflecting back on Genesis 6 through 9 in the flood. Can you imagine every living creature being drowned The horror of the death that was reigning through that event? When we consider God's repeated judgment upon the different nations for their wickedness and their continual rebellion, we ought to think of his wrath and it ought to stop us. When we consider the coming wrath of God as revealed in Revelation, it ought to stop us. And when we look at the text where the Lord speaks about the coming judgment Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 in the Olivet Discourse what do we see over and over again whoa 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 it's a word we must recognize by its power 
Well, each of these three offenses are governed by God's pronouncement of woe. And the first offense is our first point, and it follows that first woe. And I've titled our first offense as a question, Are you not pasturing? Are you not pasturing? Like pasture in a field. Are you not pasturing? You see, the shepherds were not feeding the sheep. This takes us to familiar texts like John chapter 10 and verse 11, where the Lord says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lay down, lays down his life for the sheep. He, these are not shepherding their sheep. We're reminded of Psalm 23, right? The wonderful shepherd psalm. And where it tells us in such beautiful fashion, the Lord is my shepherd. And then beyond that, there are seven different proclamations in Psalm 23 about how there will be no lack of provision in these seven areas, which include salvation and eternal life in that psalm. We often don't think of how much power Psalm 23 has. The shepherd psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. They were feeding themselves, but not the flock. This, this reminds us of another little discourse that we are familiar with in the New Testament at the end of the Synoptic Gospels in John chapter 21. In John chapter 21 and verses 15 to 17, there was a little interaction between the Lord and Peter. And in that interaction in John 21 and verse 15 we see the Lord as they had finished breakfast Jesus said to Simon Peter Simon son of John do you love me more than these he said to him let yes Lord you know that I love you and he said to him ten my lambs he said to him again a second time Simon son of John do you love me and he said to him yes Lord you know that I love you he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Here is the repeat refrain. Of course, there's so much power in that text with the transitions of the word love, agape love and phileo love. Peter always responding with the phileo love. The first two times, the Lord asking if he loves him with the agape, unending love. And he can only respond, yes, I love you. I phileo love you. And the third time, the Lord returning to that lower level. Peter, do you even phileo love me? And, and Peter so grieved, says, Lord, you know all things. And each time, feed my lambs, shepherd my flock, tend my sheep. The Lord gives us this perfect idea of this whole idea of shepherding. And these shepherds are not pasturing. That word pasturing comes about because it is what is meant in the idea of feeding. If you look into your Bibles, you may have a footnote by that word feeding in verse 2. And that footnote will say that that is literally the word pasturing. We're going to see that there's a bigger context than just physical feeding here. And we keep in mind that obviously this is a figurative representation. It is an allegory like we've seen with Ezekiel before. He's using known spiritual truths and casting them alongside of the well-known motif of a shepherd and his flock. The 
content, the connection physically is with the physical nation and their leaders. The last phrase at the end of verse 3 is more accurately translated as, you are not pasturing the sheep. He says there in that text, you eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. In light of the abundance of food, which God continually provides, this is an unconscionable offense. Think of all that God has done up to this point. Has he not delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey? A land where they did not need to build houses. They got to move in to those existing houses. How many people would like to move into a a, a full-furnished, really nice house today and just walk in, open the door, hey, I'm home? I think that that would be pretty popular with a lot of people. How many would like to move into a place in an agrarian society where they made their living and their livelihoods and their sustenance was based on the crops and you've got mature fruit trees, olive trees that you can sell, food coming up out of the ground. You don't have to plant any of it. You harvest it and you eat it. That's God's provision. It's always been God's provision. He provided for them even when he took the captives out of Jerusalem down to Babylon. He didn't plant them in the middle of the desert. What is Babylon? What is Iraq and Iran? They are deserts. They are nothing. But he didn't do that. He plants them, remember verse 1 of, or 1 or 2 of chapter 1? By the river Kibar. He plants them by a well fertilized and watered ground again providing for their every need is is it not the same today how many of us are hungry today almost none and yet are we considerate of others who may be in our society because that's the accusation here you are not feeding the flock the flock isn't just us here It is all those whom the Lord has chosen. As he told Paul in 1 Corinthians, I have many people in that city. So are we looking out for the marginalized? Are we recognizing the needs here? Do you know how important it is that we participate in the Bible club here? Those of you that are part of it, I know you understand that. Some of these children, they eat when they go to school. They have a breakfast and they have a lunch and that may be their only meal all day. And there may may be little or nothing in between, including weekends. The chance to reach out and love them, to provide for them, even to provide snacks for them. That can be a little bit of of, a bedlam situation, which we're attempting to control and help and mitigate through as part of our, our host family program. But it is so important for us to be a part of this work. The abundance of clothing is the same thing. Because, see, this pasturing is not merely feeding. It's also this idea of clothing. There's an abundance of wool for the shepherd. Well, there's an abundance here as well. Is this not what the Lord tells us? Not only in that day, but in our day as well. What does 
does it tell us in Matthew 6, that tremendous text uh, about not worrying? And in Matthew 6, 25, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? And he continues to talk about God's provision of the lilies and uh, of all these other things. And in verse, jumping to 31 of Matthew 6, he says, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. God will provide for us food and clothing and our daily sustenance and needs. He may provide others through us. What does James say? Where is your religion? If you see to the man in need, you know, be warmed and filled, how are we ministering to those needs? It's an important consideration. And even partaking of the fat, which, by the way, was offered for the Lord on the altar as his portion in Leviticus 3.17. And in Leviticus 3.17, it says, you will eat none of the fat. Now, that would go great for my sweet wife. She does not like any part of fat on any part of steak. She'll cut it right off. And our sweet little honey pot, that little baby dog that you can ride, um, she loves that. But that's what the Lord says here. There's to be none of that. By the way, if you're looking for a little clue as to whether you're at the right passage or not, that's a key component of it. Fat. So with all this abundance, the sheep are not fed. Obviously, the reference to flock here is metaphorical. It's not a reference to real sheep, but instead a reference to Israel. And the overwhelming point is that the needy are not being pastured. It's the same condition which caused the apostles to seek the appointment of the seven to care for the distribution of the widows in Acts 6 because the most needy of their society were not being cared for. The Hebrew widows were receiving their portion, but the Hellenistic Jewish widows were not. And the apostles said, we are not able to deal with this need, so appoint for yourselves. Seven men of good reputation and filled with the Holy Spirit. So the neediest weren't being cared for, and so it is here. So Ezekiel speaks for the Lord, and he cries out, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel! The shepherds are not pasturing. This leads us to our second offense in verse 4, and this I've titled, Are You Not Preserving? Are You Not Preserving? Look with me at Ezekiel 34 and verse 4. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. There are six rebukes in this verse. Five which are failings. That is a rebuke for that they have not done. These are errors of omission or sins of omission. And one rebuke for wrongdoing. This is a rebuke for wicked action. A rebuke or an error of commission. 
The first omission is not strengthening the sickly. That word is literally the weak or the feeble. Those who are exhausted or ill, they have not been made strong. They have not been repaired or restored. What does this indicate? When you hear God rebuke them for not making the sick strong, what do you think? Do you think perhaps, did they have the power to be made well? Did God give the shepherds the power to make these ones well? Would God rebuke them for something he had not given them the power to do? Of course he would not. So they do have the power. However, the weak are to be made strong, and it was the shepherd's power to do so. Again, keep in mind, we're talking about an allegory. That is, many different parables, many different spiritual truths cast alongside physical truths. This is not speaking about physical, weakly people. This is speaking about the spiritual weakling, those who are struggling in their faith. How are we with those? How quick are we when someone comes to us and tells us that they are struggling with their faith? When they're wondering if they're truly saved? Do we simply, you know, grab our Bibles and slap them on the back of the head and say, once saved, always saved. Get over yourself. No, we don't. We recognize that there are true struggles. And we try to minister to those. And we try to talk to those people. We can't allow our theology to ever become our erudite, loftier than all understanding of, of God's word. But rather, we must make sure that to whom much has been given, that much is required and that we are providing that which is required. They need to be made strong. So it is with the second act of commission, not healing the disease. The object of the verb is the same as the first omission, literally the sick or feeble or the exhausted. And they are not being made healthy, these diseased. Again, something that was in their power to do. Now, as we don't understand the metaphor and the allegory quite as well here. I don't know if any of you have been around sheep. As I've shared a couple times, I spent a bunch of time around sheep. My grandpa raised sheep, and we had usually three or four bands of 100 sheep each at different places on the 800-acre ranch that we would put hay up on in the fall. And you can't imagine how desperately out of control sheep are when they get sick. A sheep can get sick in the night and be dead before noon the next day. If a sheep falls over, they will bloat in a moment, not be able to get up, and they will strangulate in their gut and die. Sheep are the most delicate creatures. You look at them and you think, those stupid, dirty creatures. But they are so delicate in what their constitution can survive. And when you think about it, they have almost no defense. That's why they stay together all the time. Because there is safety in numbers. The whole concept of sheep, so many things we understand about ourselves exists and is so clearly communicated in them. This is what he's saying. The third commission was not binding the broken. The sheep with a broken leg was a goner. Their only defense was to kick. If they had, they could survive with a broken leg because they could move on three legs but there is no kicking with three legs you're down and they cannot get back up and they would be dead so a broken legged sheep 
is history. It was their only hope. Doubtlessly, the Hebrew is moving again through this metaphorical discussion, not physically broken, but spiritually. And the shepherd's primary job was to minister to the spiritual needs of the people, but they were completely failing. You know, I've seen it a number of times. Men fail and sin, and they are judged and disciplined by their church as they must be. But then they are ostracized by their church when they repent. Oh, no, no, not him anymore. He has done that. I don't care if he has repented or not. I don't know that it's real. Guess what? It's not your job or my job to decide if it's real. It's the Lord's job. Our job when they repent is to welcome back into the fold to bind up the broken. And we have at times in our churches done a miserable job of binding the broken. We've cast them aside and said, well, fall over broken sheep and die because we don't want you drawing back our flock. They had to minister to them. The fourth and fifth omissions are parallel. They did not bring back the scattered, nor did they seek the lost. And the spiritual significance is again unmistakable. What is a shepherd's role? Watch out for the sheep, right? Okay, don't lose the sheep. They didn't put the rocket scientists out to be the shepherds of the sheep. They had one job, watch the sheep. You got your band, don't lose them. We're going to put you out there with a group of people. You guys watch them and don't lose them. What did the Lord say in Luke 15 in verses 4 to 6? What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost." Any shepherd worth his salt goes after his sheep. It's a challenging thing for us to do because sometimes lost sheep don't want to be found, but nonetheless, we must go after them. A loss of a sheep could mean a whole month's pay for one of these men, but there is yet more the Lord tells us in that Verse in Luke 15, 7, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who need no repentance. Following the lost sheep is following the one who is away from the Lord and pursuing them. It can be hard. We, many of us have family members who are lost and who continue to reject Christ. We do not stop pursuing them. They are our target. They are our our flock. We continue to seek to love them and draw them near. This is the spiritual rescue mission. Beloved, in the same mission we're on today, this is the gospel. This is what we have. This is our only tool. It's the only tool that we need because it is perfect. And it is not us that brings the power behind it, but it is the Spirit of God working through our feeble lips and our weak actions. 
but we must be a part of it. We're seeking to strengthen the sick. We're seeking to bind up the broken. We're bringing back the scattered, and we are seeking the lost. But the shepherds of Israel are failing in every area, and their last rebuke is for their sin of commission. The deeds which they committed, namely dominating the flock with force and severity. They will be judged for each thing they did not do. The five rebukes for the errors of omission. But much more for their sins of commission. Each rebuke has been ramping up and now we get to the climax of not preserving. Dealing harshly with the flock. Ruling with a rod of iron. Forcing stocks and change upon those in their care for forced submission. This is unconscionable. These are the things about particularly the health and wealth gospel that drive me crazy. That they are bilking people out of their money. And we would say, oh, that's just incredible. How could anyone fall for that? There are people in our church who are listening to health and wealth gospel preachers and thinking they're okay. There are health and wealth gospel preachers making inroads into ministries that we use in our church. Of course, we don't use that material, we don't use those people, but we have to understand they are pervading everywhere. These are the horrors of the Roman Catholic Church who deny people the truth of their eternity in heaven at death through mechanisms like purgatory. Oh, if enough people light candles for you, and if enough indulgences are paid, you'll get to heaven eventually. Eventually? I'm counting on all of you to get me to heaven? That doesn't feel very good, does it? Will you remember to light candles? Should I like, buy you all some matches? What's going to get me there? This is dealing harshly. This is forcing those stocks and change. And the acts of those who are cruel to those who are less fortunate, those less able to defend themselves, or in texts like this, the consideration of a defenseless animal. Any of you animal lovers out there, you know there is nothing much more challenging than having to put down a pet. It's brutal. Well, consider these who are purposefully cruel to other people. When I see someone that is cruel to another human being, it's gut-wrenching. I'll tell you what, you know, we were reading a, a chapter in, in, in Dr. MacArthur's book and studying in chapter 10, and he was talking about his reaction to a man who quit in a race and how he was rather carnal in his desired gut response. I get carnal. The bad part of Scott wants to come out, and those words that I remember and the fists that I used to use, they want to come out. Because I can't stand to see people downtrodden. I can't see people who are taken advantage of. Those who are thought less of because of their race or their particular status and wealth. It's absolutely abhorrible. And yet that's exactly what these are doing. This is the cruelty. Those who would do such things are just absolutely horrible and, and absolutely unacceptable. And if this is how we feel, imagine how a holy God feels when those who are charged with the care of the children made in his image abuse those of his creation. The fury is beyond imagination. And we'll see the outpouring of that in a minute and we're reminded of the power behind the word woe. Woe. These are the horrific illustrations of 
not pasturing and not preserving. And we'll see in our third point the question of are you not pursuing, but we'll pursue that next time we get together because our time is up for tonight. So continue looking for that reference in Isaiah and its connectivity, which to that key word we mentioned, and we'll come back and conclude through these sections our next time together.